Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. I'm the host of this podcast. As always, the show notes have all of the sources mentioned, as well as all of the ways that you can connect and work with me. Without further ado, on to the show. Hey everyone, a couple of announcements before today's show. Danielle and I have the next cohort of our book club is available for registration. I'll put the link to register in the show notes of this episode. As always, you can pay whatever you want to join. And I think that these are really, really good opportunities to get an introduction into the kind of depth work that's been so transformative for Danielle and I and that we've kind of dedicated our lives to. I also want to say there's a couple other things about this book club that have been particularly impactful for me, which is that everybody brings their own experience to the text. And so I never leave our monthly calls without something really transformative or deep to consider and to think about in my own life. And then, of course, we're also bringing in the wisdom of the author. And so in this book club, we're talking about Donald Calshed's book, Trauma and the Soul. And so he's a Jungian psychotherapist, takes a a spiritual perspective at how trauma affects us. And sometimes I think people get a little skittish around the idea of trauma, especially talking about it. If you've experienced like what we would consider capital T trauma, then obviously there's a lot of pain associated with it. There's also a lot of liberation. If you're at a point where you can reflect on how it's affected you, it's a, it's a, great inflection point to work toward wholeness. But then some of us that haven't experienced that kind of trauma feel like we can't relate, into which I would say life is actually inherently traumatizing. And by that, what I mean is our ability to cope is always being overwhelmed. Our nervous system is always being overwhelmed. When we're growing, when we're learning, when we're figuring out what it means to be human and to exist in the world, our coherence of reality is always being fractured. And until we address those fractures, wholeness will elude us. And so this book takes a really cool spiritual perspective on how to think about trauma and soul loss and the quest toward wholeness, as it were. And then also I want to say that if you are interested in working with me, all of the ways to do that will be in the show notes of the episode where you can just go to rickalexander.com. I've got coaching available. I also have a lecture series on transformational work from both the practitioner and the client perspective. So if you're interested in that, all of that will be in the show notes of this episode. So today I want to talk about our models of reality, about the way, the structure that forms our thinking, right? These are the paradigms that we think within. And they're one, very hard to reflect on and see because they're very opaque to us. You know, it's kind of like wearing glasses. It's very hard to see your glasses. You can kind of you know, dial your awareness back and look at them. But for the most part, you're looking at the world through them. And so they're opaque to you. You don't see them. And our worldview, our perspective, our frame of reference for reality, our models and constructs of reality, we're looking through and we project them onto reality. And so then when we go to find success in life, we find success within the models that we've been given. So what I'm going to ask you to do here is dial your awareness back and look at the way that you're thinking. 
Look at the way that you're experiencing reality. Because one of the best parts of the spiritual path is that it can dissolve your construct of reality. In yogic philosophy, this is called a vikalpa. A vikalpa is a construct. It's a model of reality that you project onto reality. And because you project it onto it, you don't see reality as it is. And so the process of awakening is often called nirvikalpa. And nir is a negation. So it's without construct. It's without model. And if you were able to see reality without your construct, without your model, and again, I know, as I said, that these are opaque to us. We don't see them, which is why we live within them. But as a thought experiment, let's try to pull our awareness back and just look at them. So what happens is we project these models of reality, and then we try to find success within the model. Now, the experience of awakening is called nirvikalpa because when the model dissolves, what you're then left with is unmediated reality, reality as it actually is. And when you experience reality as it actually is, it's constantly new to you. It's constantly refreshing itself. And so you have this sort of renewed interest in it always. It couldn't be any other way. But like, let's say that I tell you right now, one minute from now, you have no idea what's going to happen to you. You could die in one minute. Do you know that? Now, that doesn't mean much to you because you don't, it doesn't fit in your model of reality. You, you don't have yourself dying. One of my favorite teachers talks about this idea of looking at the sunset and having the experience of thinking that you will see more sunsets. And eventually, that, of course, isn't going to be true. Eventually, you will have seen your last sunset, right, or sunrise or whatever. But these thoughts, this, this knowledge even, that we are, in fact, one day going to die, doesn't have enough power to disrupt our model of ourselves, our model of reality. It doesn't have enough authority in it to disrupt our model of reality. And so like in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, one of the reasons that they meditate on their own death five times a day isn't to be morbid. It's because if they can make that thought have authority, it's going to dissolve their models of reality. And what's going to come next is the realization that you are alive. And I would posit this idea that what we actually all want in our lives is, is the experience of being alive, of being connected, of having been here and having felt like we were fully alive. So one thing that happens, I wrote about this in my latest book a little bit, is that we have these models of reality and we try to find success within the model. And we'll talk about what some of these models look like. But we try to find success within the model. And at some point, we come to the realization that for all of our grasping, it doesn't matter. Like all of our achievement, it doesn't matter. I mean, it matters for our lives, of course. It matters here now. But once we get this subtle recognition that I could make any amount of money but that's not going to solve my human problem of wanting to feel alive. Now, in that realization, that's a moment of, well, like what Jesus would call metanoia, a moment to turn around, to do it differently, to see it differently. It's when the spiritual path can actually start awakening, is when you start to see that, there is a, that there's a flaw in your model, that there's a flaw in your plan. And there's a teaching in yogic psychology called ananda, which means bliss. And the idea is that your innate nature is actually one of bliss. 
And in Buddhism, they would call that Buddha nature. You're already awakened. It's who you are. It's what you are. It's your birthright to be here and to be awake. But because we have all of these models, we don't ever experience ourselves that way. And I, I've struggled around these teachings particularly because I don't experience myself as pure bliss. And, and rarely have I, actually. But I have had moments. And those moments are enough for me to continue wanting to do the work, so to speak. But it is a lot of work because our models are deep. Like, for example, think about identity. Most people identify themselves with their job or with their relationship. And because what you really are is this expansive, limitless being that doesn't fit into any model, and that's part of the problem. What happens is when you identify with your job, you now collapse all of that, all that you actually are, around this thing that you're identifying with, around this object. Same thing with desire. You're desiring something, and when you use money to fill that, you, de- you collapse what you actually want down to this small thing and you feel it. And when you feel it, you should listen because it's the recognition, the subtle shift in your perspective that says there might be something else. There might be another way, another way to think about this, another way to live in the world. Or like what I hear is common and what's definitely common in me is there's got to be more than this life that I'm living because I get the subtle sense that no matter how much I achieve, I'm still going to be left with the feeling that there's got to be something more than this. And that would come on the back of actually getting achievements. And so what they would say again in yogic psychology is right because you, you're trying to find success within a model and the model is too small for how reality actually is. You're not seeing reality as it actually is, you're trying to find success within the model. And there are some games that you lose just by playing. The ego's games of worthiness are like this, right? If I get this, I'll be worthy, the right amount of money, the right love, this next thing I need. And it's never going to work, and you know it's never going to work. And the reason it's not going to work is because you're coming from the wrong place. You're worthy by virtue of what you are, not what you have. And so I want to say two things about One, our Western models, and then two, how some of our neuroses can wake us up to this idea. So one, let's talk about the Western model of reality, which is that really it's heavily masculine dominated. And by masculine, I do not mean man, I mean masculine energy, right? It's a very achievement oriented. If you look into our cities, we build phallics, right? All of our buildings are phallics that protrude up into the air from the earth. And if you want to be successful, you climb those ladders, right? You move up in office, you achieve, you get higher. So there's this up and out masculine dominated energy in our society. Now, when somebody, let's take an individual, for example, lives in only a masculine way, they don't feel whole, obviously, because if you were whole, then you would have both masculine and feminine energy. And so it's like, well, then what's the symptom of not having access to the feminine? Well, feminine energy is containing, it's warmth, it's nourishing, it's dynamic, it's your attachment to vitality and life itself, right? It's your soul. And so when we live in really masculine ways, we start to feel soulless. There's a really cool uh, Gnostic gospel that talks about this idea of the feminine being the connection to life and being our connection to vitality. 
So this was one of the Nag Hammadi scriptures. So Nag Hammadi was a, was a, it was at one point like an ascetic village who had all of these scriptures, the Gospel of Thomas, all of these Gnostic scriptures come from there that were essentially locked away and lost for like 2,000 years. And it's a really fascinating story on how they got found. But it's very interesting when you think about the fact that they were suppressed and then surfaced again, especially when you think about it symbolically, because the religion that dominated our society, that dominated the Western world for the 2,000 years while the Nag Hammadi scriptures were missing, was very masculine dominated. So just listen to this one. It's called Eve Gives Adam Life. After the day of rest, Sophia sent her daughter Zoe, called Eve, as an instructor to raise Adam in whom there was no soul, so that the children he would engender might be vessels of light. So Sophia is wisdom. Now, even in the biblical traditions, the first thing that God does, like this, you can find this in the Wisdom of Solomon, for example, uh, in Proverbs mentioned Sophia too. The first thing that God creates is wisdom, and it's by wisdom that all else is created. And so this idea is that Eve was the daughter of wisdom. This is what's coming through in this parable. So after the first day of rest, Sophia sent her daughter Zoe, called Eve, as an instructor to raise Adam in whom there was no soul, so that the children he would engender might be vessels of light. So I'm going to keep going, but let's just look at this logic real fast. Right? Why is it that we seek the wisdom path? Why, why do we seek these with wisdom traditions? Well, in this parable, it's wisdom that gives birth to soul. And so we seek wisdom so that we can find soul. So Sophia, wisdom, sends Eve down soul to Adam. And why does she do it? Because then the children that he engenders will be full of light. So why do we seek the wisdom path? We seek the wisdom path to be connected to soul. And why do we want to be connected to soul? Because then what we create and what we give birth to is going to be full of light. And in that case, we're no longer adding to the darkness of our world. Eve saw her male partner on the ground. She felt sorry for him and said, Adam, live, get up from the ground. At once, her word became an accomplished deed. When Adam got up at once, he opened his eyes and he saw her and said, you will be called the mother of the living because you have given me life. Now, there's something really potent and powerful in there that your connection to the anima, your connection to soul is your connection to life. And so what happens when you start to live in a a model of reality that is very masculine dominated is that it feels lifeless, that it feels soulless. So that's one of, the, one of the things to consider about our own models, about our society and the way that we were raised. Now, the other thing that I want to offer forward as a contemplation is this idea that actually what you're seeking ex- externally are always internal, right? So power, love, freedom, compassion, these are things that are innately yours. And the experience of waking up is the realization that those things are you, that you are them, that you are love, that you are free that you couldn't be anything other than that except for when your mental constructs don't allow you to to access it. They don't allow you to see it. And so then that starts to make a little bit of sense, right? Because think about our desire for power. Think about the way that our desire for power is really built into our lives. Like we want jobs that make us powerful. We want achievement that makes us powerful. When you hear really like low vibrational, you know, advice on dating, it's about getting the upper hand. It's about becoming powerful. And what I would suggest is that that you have innate in you an amount of power that is unfathomable. Now you don't experience yourself that way. And so it's very difficult to 
understand or to come to grips with. But think about the monks in Vietnam that are in complete equanimity and setting themselves on fire for the love of their race, right? They're protesting against tyranny. So what they're doing is an act of love and their body is literally burning and they're in a place of complete equanimity, surrender, and bliss. Now that's a power that we don't even have any reference for. We couldn't even imagine what that would like. And like, honestly, I think one of the problems when we take our Western perspective toward an Eastern path, for example, is that because we have no reference for that, we then take the teaching and move it into our model rather than allowing the teaching to dissolve our models. In fact, we do this with religion all the time. There's a whole there's a whole facet of spirituality called spiritual materialism, which is like, how do I take these spiritual principles and use them to get what I want in life, to, to fit my model, in other words. But the value of the spiritual life, as I've said before, is that it opens you up to the unknown, that it dissolves your models if you're open to it. And in that dissolving of models, life becomes refreshed and renewed to you. You get access to your soul. You get access to life. Love is another way that we do this, right? What you are is love. There's no other way to put it. But you don't experience yourself that way. But what happens when you fall in love? When you fall in love, you start to experience the world a little bit differently. Now, what's happening psychologically when you're in that honeymoon phase, you know, when the passion is there, what's happening in that moment is that you're projecting that onto your partner. And so what's happening is that you're seeing the place in you where you are love. And you know it because when you're falling in love, when you're in the honeymoon phase, and let's say you're not even around that person, you still experience the world differently. There's like a kind of hope, a subtle hope that's infused in your everyday experience. The world might seem brighter, might seem uh, full of more possibilities, and you have this general sense about you that is just happy, that's just joyous. What happens when we seek something that's ours outside of ourselves is that we turn this thing that is innately ours into a hell realm. Because if it can be given, it can be taken. So let's stick with the love thing for right now. You project your own soul onto this person. Eventually, they're not going to be able to hold your projections anymore. Now, in that moment, you can go find a new projector screen. You can go find somebody else that gives you that same feeling. And that's what a lot of us do. That's what I've done for a lot of my life. And what's happening there is that you're going out and you're looking to refine that thing in yourself, that place in yourself where you are love. Now, what else might happen is you can choose to love that person for real. And then what happens is you're going to wrestle with, that's going to be a challenge. You're going to struggle with that immensely because you have to learn to love them for who they actually are. And you don't really know who they are until that projection starts to fall away. So it's only once the honeymoon phase really ends that you that you really start to know what it means to actually love another human being, I would posit. But that aside, let's say that you fall in love with this person, they hold your projections well, let's say that they leave you. Well, what happens then is that you go through agony. You go through pain because they've taken away what's already yours. See, this, again, is how we turn what's actually ours into a hell realm. Because if you have to find it without, that means you don't have it, which means you're coming from a place of lack. And a place of lack, a place of not enoughness, that is constant hell. And so what then happens and people become so almost inconsolable. I remember after my my last breakup, this feeling of just this immense depression, immense sadness. And the reason being is because I don't have an ability to access in myself 
what I found in them because they gave me a mirror and access to my own soul. And so what now happens is sometimes we get stuck in the method. We get stuck in the trap. Same thing with religious systems, right? Let's say you go to a church and you have this experience of spirit. And all of a sudden, again, same thing. You have all this possibility, all of this newness, right, is, is coming into your model. But if you don't ever understand that that's yours, that that's your birthright, your connection to God is, is your birthright, and you can call God by whatever you name, whatever name you want, right? And you can exist in that place in constant communion with God. If you think you have to go back to church to find that, you might turn it into a hell realm, right? Because you get trapped in the method. The, the, all of these methods, they're just for us. They're just here for us. They're, they're grace, you know? Uh, I one time heard Jordan Peterson, actually just last week at a talk, I heard him say, um, we were at a talk in Denver, and he said, falling in love is something like divine grace illuminating the path. And what he's saying is he's showing you what's possible. It's showing you that there is another way to be. It's, it's For a moment, it's offering a glimpse out of your model is what's happening. But if you don't walk that path, if you don't continue to seek that in yourself, then the door is going to close and you're going to be inconsolable and you're going to have to go find it elsewhere. And so this idea, like once we make enough money, then we'll be free. Once we have enough power, then we'll be free. Once we fall in love, we'll be happy. We're seeking what's already ours. But because we don't have a model that allows us to access it, because we don't know it's ours, we keep seeking it out in the world. And again, kind of turn it into a hell realm because we come at it from a place of fundamental lack, of not enoughness. And this, again, is one of the main motivators of our society because this lack drives us. It drives us to succeed. It drives us to success. But we pay a price in soul. We pay a price in connection to self. And we pay a price in what I would submit we actually all want, which is to feel fully alive, to take our one precious human life and feel like we have actually used it to live. And if our models aren't allowing that to happen, it's not that you have to try harder, it's that the model needs to go away because that model might not be able to give you what you really need. So what do you do there? Well, you listen. You pay attention to the moments where the model, where the, the model starts to shake, you know, where it starts to be called into question. Moments where you achieve something and the achievement fades a little bit too quickly for your liking, the feeling, you know, where the new car smell fades a little bit too quickly for your liking. Or for me, you know, I pushed the escape button a lot, like I was really heavily drank in my 20s. And I pushed the escape button so much it stopped to work. And what happens is that this desire, you know, is one, one thing Carl Jung says is that if you had your desire, you'd have your soul. But since your desire has you, you don't. And so what happens is we have these desires that drive us. And what we will do if we don't realize that that fundamental desire is a desire to connect with what's actually ours, with our fundamental nature, is that we consume things out in the world and it's poison to us. And so we consume porn, we have one night stands, we, again, listen, nothing wrong with any of these things. I want to be super clear about that. The thing that's wrong is our model of reality. The thing that's wrong is the thing that we think we're going to get from that and what we're actually after. Because it's all right here. It's all in front of us. Remember last, the last teaching was this idea that these teachings have to come meet us where we're at. And so the best thing you can do 
is to pay attention to the subtle hints that where you're at isn't living up to what you're actually seeking. The desire for sexual gratification, that's coming from a real place. The desire for love, the desire for power, achievement, money, freedom, the desire isn't fake. It's real. That's why it's so powerful. But if you can find it in yourself, it can lead you into a fullness of who you are because you start to realize that, wow, what I'm actually desiring is a connection to my fundamental nature. And my fundamental nature is connected to all that is, that I never actually left Eden. And it's coming home to that realization that is the dissolving of our models, that is the falling away of our via culpas. And when that happens, what arises in us is bliss. Hopefully that gives you something to think about. Hope you have a good day. We'll talk to you later.